The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Back when we had a preschool here at Good Shepherd, I was leading chapel one day for the little ones. There they were, lined up in the first two pews, and there I was wearing my robe and my stole and my cross. We'd work on learning a hymn verse, have a scripture reading and a brief devotion, followed by prayer and a benediction. And one day, sometime during chapel, A little three-year-old girl raised her hand, looked at me, and addressed me very politely, saying, Um, God? It's still pretty funny to me, the thought that anyone would confuse me personally with God. But isn't it also a little outrageous that a child would think that God looked like a normal human being like me or like you? Oh, for the faith of a child. Or Peter. In our gospel reading, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The answer might seem obvious to you because you know how the story turns out, but it's not so obvious then. Given the Greek, it might be better, helpful, to translate Jesus' question as, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Because it kind of shows the paradox. On the one hand, Son of Man sounds lowlier than the men who are talking about him. On the other hand, the title Son of Man has some messianic freight going for it. So who is this humble, traveling rabbi with no place to lay his head who also happens to work miracles? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The disciples run through the usual guesses, which are interesting. Some say he's the prophet Elijah who didn't die but was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, while others say he's one of the prophets like Jeremiah who did die but apparently has come back to life. These speculations apparently make enough sense for people to share them, so I wonder... 
Will they believe that Jesus is alive, come back to life after the resurrection? Will they believe that he, like Elijah, ascends into heaven? At any rate, all sorts of people have all sorts of sincere ideas about who Jesus might be. I can never read through this text without remembering the words of one of my professors along the way. He said, sincerity has its limits. It is possible to be sincere and sincerely wrong at the same time. Back to our text, though. Having run through all the wrong answers, Jesus asks the twelve, But who do you say that I am? And this is Peter's moment. He says to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is worth dissecting for a minute or two. You are the Christ, says Peter. In other words, you are the Messiah, the one who has been chosen and anointed by God to deliver his people. Peter is absolutely right, and it goes against appearances. Jesus doesn't come across as some sort of invincible alpha male who is gathering armies to do some serious house cleaning around Judea. He's nothing special in appearance, and he spends a lot of his time walking from village to village, skipping the big city stadium events. He's not acting like you might expect a Messiah to act, so it's pretty impressive that Peter would say to him, You are the Christ. There's more to it than that. Remember that at the time, the people mostly have an incorrect view of what the Messiah is supposed to do. They're expecting the warrior to show up who will lead the revolt against the Romans and cleanse the land of heathen. In this regard, they've already had some messiahs come and go. Some of them, Judas of Galilee and Thutis, are even mentioned in the New Testament. They came, they fought, they were defeated, they died. Now, as I said... No one's going to look at a wandering rabbi like Jesus and say that he's like one of those warriors. Along with that, though, being a Messiah like one of those guys is not enough because those guys keep on losing. There's got to be something else that sets Jesus apart. Which brings us to the second part of Peter's confession, where he says that Jesus is the Son of the living God. So the Son of Man is the Son of God. That's what Peter says. Old news to you, I know. You've already said so in the creed this morning. Nevertheless, it's not something that comes naturally to say. I mean, you're tempted all the time to idolize people, to turn them into false gods whom you trust more than God himself. However, you're never looking at someone you know and thinking... Even though I know he was born on such and such a date a few years back, I'll bet that he's really the eternal son of God without beginning or end, who has deigned to take on human flesh and come into our time and dying world. It's never occurred to you to wonder that way about the people in the pew next to you. Am I right? Or am I right? That's why Peter's confession of faith is so astonishing. He looks at a man in his early 30s and confesses, You've been around for eternity. He looks at a man with feet dusty from walking and says, I believe that you're omnipotent and omnipresent. 
Again, Jesus doesn't stand out in appearance from everybody else. And he's not even wearing a white robe with a stole to set him apart. But even where all sorts of people know he's unique but get him sincerely wrong, Peter, Peter looks at him and nails it. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's right. And, remembering his way of blurting whatever he's thinking, it's good to know that he didn't come up with this himself. He knows it because God the Father has told him about the Son. Keep reading around the New Testament, and you know that God the Father tells about his Son by the work of the Holy Spirit. So Peter makes his good confession, not because it's revealed by flesh and blood, but because the Holy Trinity is at work to give him that faith and those words. Jesus isn't done, though. He goes on to say, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is doing a play on words here in the Greek. The name Peter means rock, but Peter is not the rock in which the church is built. The church is built on the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter himself will say this in 1 Peter chapter 2, quoting the prophet Isaiah that Jesus is the cornerstone. Add to that Jesus' next words, and you've got all sorts of comfort and joy, because Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now we talk about the office of the keys quite a bit, off and on, now and then, so let's maybe do it a little bit differently this time. Let's set heaven aside for a second and imagine that you're driving along, now you're stopped at a stoplight, and someone rear-ends your car. When you get out of the car, the other driver is profusely apologetic. They hand you their insurance card and they say, I'm so sorry. This is all my fault. I wish it hadn't happened. Please forgive me. With someone who accepts the blame for their actions and apologizes, well, you're likely to say something like, I forgive you or I won't hold this against you. Okay, now imagine the same thing happens, but... When you get out of the car, the other driver says, I can't believe you were stupid enough to stop for that red light. This is all your fault, and I'm not sorry it happened one bit, and I'll do it again tomorrow if I see you. What do you say then? Well, if it's safe to say anything, you you might point out that they seem quite fine with breaking the law, and that if you see them headed toward you tomorrow, you'll probably call the cops. In other words, you are going to hold it against them, and for good reason. Now, in this silly little example, you're saying either, I see that you are sorry and I forgive you, or I see that you're not sorry and you don't want to be forgiven. You're not being a mind reader. 
You're simply telling the truth and reacting to what they've said to you. Now, this is the binding and loosing part of the Office of the Keys. When someone says, Hey, I'm not sorry that I've sinned and I don't want my sins taken away. I see no need. We say the obvious. If your sin isn't removed, then it's still stuck to you. It's still bound to you. That's the binding part of the Office of the Keys. When someone says, I know that I've sinned and I want to be forgiven, we say, your sins are loosed. They're taken away. That's the loosing part of the Office of the Keys. It's not some sort of sorcery that pastors are working in a back room. It's simply speaking the truth. But more than that, it's speaking God's truth. Jesus doesn't say whatever you bind and loose on earth will be bound and loosed on earth alone. But he also says it will be bound and loosed in heaven. In other words, when we speak the truth about sin and grace, we're speaking God's word about sin and grace. When we say to the penitent, you are forgiven, it's not just to say, I hope you feel better. The fuller message is, God does not hold your sins against you because Christ, the Son of the living God, became flesh and carried your sins to the cross so that they might be loosed from you and you released from them. When we say to the impenitent, you're not forgiven, we're not just saying this really ought to bother you. The fuller message is, God still holds your sins against you because even though Christ, the Son of the living God, has paid the price for your sins on the cross, you still insist in holding on to them. God wants them loosed from you, and you're the one tying them tight to you. In this text, then, we get the who and the why of Jesus. Peter gets the who right as he declares Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus supplies the why of his presence there. He is there to open the kingdom of heaven. And he gives to his people the honor of speaking the word that unlocks the kingdom of heaven. Now next week we get to the how of salvation and Peter doesn't do so well next time around. But for now, rejoice in this. God's word is powerful and life-giving. We know this from the Office of the Keys. We see this today in church, and we rejoice as God combines his word with water for the baptism of a young man in our midst. Far more than just a rite, a symbol, the Lord declares to this young man today, Baptism now saves you. Today, by my word, you are born again and anew, and now you are an adopted son in the family of God because you are clothed with Christ, the Son of the living God. This baptism isn't just to remember that Jesus died and rose for you, but in baptism you have participated in Jesus' death and his resurrection. And if you've been raised up with Christ who lives forever, then you will live forever too. That's the word of God at work in the office of the keys, 
and holy baptism, loosing sins, and even the grip of the grave, so that his people might have grace and life now and forevermore. What joy! Thanks be to God for the work of Christ, the Son of the living God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.